0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
1: Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so, I, I've been planning this episode for what, like a year and a half now? Um... Elon Green is joining me. He has written for the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The New Yorker and the Columbia Journalism Review and appears in Unspeakable Acts, Sarah Wyman's Anthology of True Crime. He's been an editor at Longform since 2011 and his new book is called Last Call, a true story of love, lust and murder in queer New York. And I've been hearing about it for a long time and I'm so thrilled to have him join me now. Hi.
2: Hey Maris. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's so good. To, we're, we're doing this. I feel like we've talked about it for so long.
2: I am extremely excited.
1: Okay. Before we get into the case that you wrote about and the characters that you wrote about, I think the first thing I want to ask you about is that you wait until the acknowledgement, spoiler alert, to talk about how you first heard of this case. So tell me about the decision to not use the first person point of view in the book.
2: It was never anything that I considered because I'm so uninterested in my own role in the writing of the book. And in general, when writers bring themselves into books, I think it fails. Sometimes it can work, like the way David Grant brings himself into the last section of Killers of the Flower Moon, or it can work if the writer is actually part of the story.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But I always felt that my role was as an observer but also as basically a conduit for other people's recollections. So it would never have occurred to me to play any kind of role in the book unless, unless I had to which I do in the epilogue.
1: Sure, um, so, so let's, now let's go back and tell me how you first heard of this story, case, I don't know what to call it. Um, it, it, it really stood out to me that my, in my own personal life in the 90s, I was a sentient human being living near Asbury Park, probably reading the Asbury Park Press, probably aware of something, Um, and yet I have no recollection of it, which speaks to how poorly it was covered or that I was too busy in high school drama at the time. (laughs)
2: Um, Well, the book was... To some degree, born out of a a failed attempt at another book, um, I had tried to expand another story uh, about some murders in San Francisco in the mid-70s called The Doodler Murders uh, into a book. The idea that my agent and I hatched was that it would really be a history of the Castro in those years, and the murders would sort of be a backdrop. But once I realized that there was simply not enough material for that book, I figured I'd look for something else. And But I wanted to explore the same issues of a, the, a community that was basically being screwed on a federal and local level, uh, being extremely oppressed and whose assaults and murders were not being taken very seriously. And so reading, I think it was a back issue of The Advocate. Uh, It was a story that was written when this case was cold, the last call case was cold, and I had never heard of the case. And after a short Google search, I figured out what what it was and that it had been solved. And so I texted it to my friend, Sarah Weinman who knows more about true crime than than anybody else. And I asked her if she had heard of the case. And when she hadn't, I immediately called our mutual agent, David Patterson.
1: Yeah, that's such a good sign for um, a book if Sarah hasn't heard about your subject matter. It struck me, one of the things you write, again, in the acknowledgements, cause you don't, you don't talk about your role in the book, in the book, which I admire, um, was that there's no Wikipedia entry even for this case, which I find so shocking. And also it's, it sounds so hard to come from the outside then and pull this thing together and see all of its angles. Tell me how you did that.
2: Well, there was a fair amount of existing material. Mm -hmm. Um, There was of course the court transcript uh, from when the murderer was convicted uh, in 2005. And so that alone had a, a great deal of material Um, especially in establishing the bones of the narrative. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I essentially had an open field uh, because, you know, many of the people involved in the case on the investigative side, but also victims, family members and friends were still alive and nobody had called them if at all in 20 years. So when I called them, Most of them were willing and eager to talk. And then, you know, once I'd been working on the story, the book, for a couple of years, especially going back even to the proposal stage, detectives just started giving me stuff.
1: Oh, interesting. Uh,
2: Almost nothing I relied on in the book came from official sources. My foils were rejected by uh, Rockland County, New York, uh, you know, the NYPD
0: mm-hmm.
2: and New Jersey, um, you know, very little in the book was above board.
1: <laughs> I, I love this element of true crime and your true crime. Um, so tell me, like, let's, I, I think we should back up. um, the series of murders you write about, Um, feel like a serial murder in some sort of TV show or something like they're they're so lurid and they're so similar there's a pattern like I feel like that's the kind of thing we like to glorify in our entertainment Because it's, we have this idea that it's fun to enjoy smart, interesting serial killers.
2: I will say that I don't actually think the murders are Hmm. particularly lurid. Um, I often think of something, I often think of something that a San Francisco detective said to me when I had described one of the murders um, as brutal. And he said to me, they're all brutal. Yeah. And I think that the reason that they come off, particularly so in Last Call, is because I actually take the time to describe what was done to the men. Yes. I think if you did that to just about every murder, uh, <laughs> just about you know, every person who's been killed, it would feel that way. Because they're all destructive, no matter what the method is.
1: And then of course, what was done to these men after they were killed is a whole other thing too. Tell me about talking to the people who discovered these bodies. Did you talk to them or were those? Um,
2: Let me think. Yes, sometimes I did Um, when I I could. Um, I certainly tried to talk to Everybody. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, uh, But, you know, the man who's uh, uh, probably the most memorable um, of all the people who found uh, the bodies um, is, I don't name him. uh, His name is John. Uh, He's at the beginning of the book. And he was a, um, I think he was a maintenance worker. Hold on a second. Sure. <laughs>
1: that.
2: It's been so long. I remember where I was when I interviewed him. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was, um, he was a maintenance worker in, uh, on, a, on a turnpike in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's now a, a, a caterer, um, for what it's worth. And mm-hmm. um, I was interviewing him over the phone while well, sitting on the floor of the New York Public Library, they refused to let me into a room to conduct the interview. Oh, no. And so we were having this discussion about him finding um, a dead body in a trash barrel as tourists are walking back and forth. Oh
1: boy.
2: And, um, you know, he he utters the line that, people tend to stop on once they start the book because he he says, you know, just des- describing uh, opening each bag, you know, there were eight in all. And he says, it looked like a loaf of bread, but then I saw freckles. And, um, you know, every now and then in the book process, somebody will say something to you where you sort of immediately know that it's memorable.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that was certainly the case.
1: And when you started your investigation and or, or the sc- scope of writing this book, were all of the murders you describe already a part of the story?
2: Not really, or, or at least not mm. to the degree that I made them. Um, Fred Spencer, who was the victim in 1973, was literally just a sidebar in press coverage. Um, there was very, very little already in the uh, searchable, uh, you know, public domain. Um, I had to, you know, go pretty deep into the Bangor Daily News archives, and I interviewed. Uh, associate attorneys involved in the case and the court stenographer. um, uh, And then, you know, one of the other cases, which is uh, an assault case from 1988 that resulted in a bench trial in Staten Island in 1990, uh, that also was relegated to a sidebar, but luckily uh, an enterprising court clerk in Ocean County uh, found the transcript uh, about a week before I was done with the proposal.
1: Wow.
2: And uh, so she effectively gave me another 3,000 words to write about because nobody had ever seen that transcript.
1: Tell me about the victims and what drew you to wanting to tell their stories in particular
2: it was a number of things although it's not as if there was something extraordinary about any of them Mm -hmm. and that was part of the attraction actually because everybody no matter how famous or forgotten they are is interesting if you look close enough yeah and their lives have you know really fascinating arcs and and you know cross into some you know really interesting places and periods and these guys were you know were from different professions uh, were different ages mm-hmm. came from different places and 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 had some really you know different experiences and and looked at as a whole they really encompassed like gay life in those years um, you know some were in the closet, mm-hmm. some were not uh one was in the military one was HIV positive. Um, it was it was a chance to write about it all. Um, but of course, once once I you know, once I started researching their lives, that's all I really wanted to do. It seemed to me that if there was going to be an engine for the book, it had to be them. My I had so little interest. In the murderer, that in the proposal that was sold to <laughs> Macmillan, there was no chapter on the murder.
1: Interesting.
2: And I only wrote one out of narr- narrative necessity.
1: That that makes sense to me, having read the book, and yet it's um, it's what a great way to frame a true crime story to be about the victims rather than the perpetrator.
2: I truly didn't give a shit. And I (laughs) kind of, and I mostly still don't. Um, I had done a lot of research on him, Mm -hmm. uh, during the proposal, uh, you know, the year I worked on the proposal. So I had it. And then I was given, um, a binder which was used in preparation for the murder trial, which relied on his um, personal calendar, work calendar, um, credit card records, and vacation slides. And it was effectively uh, giving me a timeline of his entire life. So Mm -hmm. once I had that, I could more or less put a chapter together on him. Um, which I needed to do to fill in uh, you know, a gap um, of about six years when, when the case had gone cold.
1: Mm-hmm. But you're more, you know, you're primarily interested in this time in New York City that seems like it was lifetimes ago but it wasn't, Um, when being queer in the West Village and Chelsea was- A risk. A risk, that's the best way to say it. And that it it took me for you to say that AIDS affected this community like nothing else, but I didn't think about how the public's perception of AIDS and the the propaganda about it would make New York City at that time more violent.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was, I have memories um, of that period and about that period in the epidemic. I remember being in school and, you know, hearing that AIDS was transmissible via toilet seats. You know, that was sort of taken for granted. Um, of course, we learned about Ryan White.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but working on this book gave me a much greater sense of how much worse everything was mm-hmm. than I knew or even knew new. Year- new- years later Um, and being able to make that connection between the epidemic and the violence that was being perpetrated on queer New Yorkers was was startling.
1: And even when like, we know that that is the most the crime was up in the 80s and 90s and still it surprised me to hear this and and so much of it of course is because you you can't call the cops in in 1991 if you're a gay man who's been the victim of a hate crime
2: yeah i mean i can't remember who who said it to me but you know um i think it was i think it was probably a a staff member of the Anti-Violence Project. They said, you know, people didn't bother going to the cops in the early 80s because assaulting a queer person wasn't a
1: crime. Yeah, and so how do you even begin to account for the numbers of people who were hurt um, if you can't even Report it. Tell me about the AVP and um, the radicalization that was necessary in the area because violence just wasn't being addressed.
2: Yeah, so I wrote a chapter about the Anti-Violence Project because I felt that, and I should say, the Anti-Violence Project was was an organization that was, you know, started in the early '80s as a way to get, uh, the NYPD, um, in particular, uh, try to convince them to take, you know, anti-queer violence seriously, uh, which as I said, they did not. They did not. And, you know, AVP is sort of, uh, tangentially involved in the story of the last call murders. Um, but I felt that they were involved just enough that it made sense to just pull away a bit, sorry, (sighs) um, pull away a bit from the narrative and to give readers a sense of the backdrop of what was going on in New York and quite frankly, the stakes Mm -hmm. and why the queer community was so angry at how the case was being handled. And the only way to really do that was to tell the story of why AVP came about in the first place. Yeah. Um, And that was a really interesting, difficult chapter to work on because so little of its history has been traditionally preserved and also they refuse to cooperate with me.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, um, that makes sense. You know,
2: even and 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 the the history that they present is incomplete to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, like I, I was given a, a tip basically early on in the research, for example, um, that the original director was a former nun named Rebecca Porper,
0: right.
2: who uh, you know worked at the uh, Union Theological Seminary. and um, she's effectively been written out of their history. And so when I called her up, she was just tickled. <laughs> and I spent you know months just piecing together um, its rise uh, as an organization. Uh, you know, from an apartment in uh, in Chelsea to you know the office they eventually occupied in what is now the LGBT Center in Manhattan. Um, you know, and I interviewed a lot of uh, the former executive directors and staffers and found bits and pieces mm-hmm. about. You know, their accomplishments uh, in the LGBT Center Library, um, you know, uh, Thomas Dwayne, uh, you know, famous uh, gay lawmaker who represented Chelsea, uh, had a bit about uh, the organization in his papers, which he had donated.
1: Mm.
2: And, you know, of course, while the murders were happening, they were very vocal about how badly they were being investigated. And so there was a little bit of that narrative thread that I could work into the chapter.
1: Let's take a step back again and talk about, more about the scene that was going on in the 80s and 90s especially the, the piano bars that you talk about. Like I certainly in this pandemic, the idea of going to Marie's crisis and singing show tunes drunkenly around a piano sounds like heaven.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, again, this was one of those things where material that I thought was going to be there just simply wasn't. And to this day, I don't know why there hasn't been that much written about these bars. Yeah. I think it's because so much of what has been written about queer life in New York in the early nineties, late eighties, is through the prism of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't really occur to anybody to treat the bars and clubs as bars and clubs where people would congregate to have fun, even Mm -hmm. amid a pandemic and an epidemic. And And so luckily uh, there were still existing sources of information Mm -hmm. like Matthew Bank, who was the founding editor of a publication called HX, which was a bar rag, um, uh, primarily a a gay bar rag. And he gave me, uh, you know, stacks of it <laughs> and it was you know basically an easy way to figure out you know where all these bars were and allowed me to give a sense of um the layout of the the bar scene in those years because many of these bars simply didn't leave a trace historically
1: which i, I- I feel like, especially in the media that I consume about New York City now, where every place seems to have like a fandom and like uh, people who want to um, remember what's happened there and, and, and be a part of its history.
2: And the thing is, is those people still exist. Um, they just don't necessarily have an outlet to mm-hmm. discuss these bars. Um, I found many bar regulars, not just um, for New York bars, but for the chapter where I write about mm-hmm. um, bars in Philadelphia, yep. just by tweeting, you know, are there any regulars from the blue parrot, you know, circa 1991. And wow. I would hear from people
1: that's incredible. Um and of course one of one of the main characters I'd say in this book is Rick Unterberg who was the pianist at a bar called the Townhouse in the East 50s. I it seems like you must have a line to him.
2: Oh, Rick and I spent a fair amount of time together. Um, you know, at his apartment, at the townhouse. Um, you know, I I went to the townhouse a lot, even when I, especially when I wasn't doing any reporting because I loved it there. Mm-hmm. And I just found it so relaxing. Um, I mean, it's also kind of a pleasant novelty to be hit on, which doesn't... Mm ever happen anywhere else um but yeah there was nothing better than settling back with a glass of Jameson and listening to Rick play for a couple of hours and he he was such a a willing participant in the book I would almost say more of a co-conspirator than anything else you know he like many of the sources I had you know, felt he had a real personal stake in the book being good (laughs) and you know, he would always he was always more bullish on the book's, you know, prospects for becoming a movie and always said I would like to be played by Tom Cruise and um, it's upsetting that he's not around to uh, see where things stand
1: I'm so sorry about that. And all right, let's not talk anymore about that because I don't want to. I don't know if calling it a spoiler doesn't seem right, but you set this scene of this time in New York City in the early 90s when the AIDS epidemic is destroying the community entirely. There's increased violence. And then on top of all of the other horrifying things going on, there is an actual killer on the loose. Tell me about Rick's and, and other people's experiences if if you ask them about it. Um, so, of, <laughs> Like socializing and, and wanting thing, to feel.
2: The thing with these murders mm-hmm. and you know, it's one of the reasons why people don't remember them is that when 11,000 people are being diagnosed with AIDS in a year, as I think they were in New York in, I believe it was 1991, the fact that there's a murder happening in, you know, maybe once every 10 months or 12 months doesn't really register.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, from as, as Rick, you know, once memorably put it like it didn't really affect the, 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 the two murders of, of men at the, from the townhouse didn't really affect the ebb and flow of the bar because, you know, they were tourists.
1: Mm-hmm. And so,
2: you know, they weren't missed. And, um, you know, I think that, the, you know, the bigger picture of gay life in New York was so bleak during that period that the fact that there was a serial killer targeting these men was kind of an afterthought. Hmm. You know, I only met a single person during the reporting of this book who wasn't directly or even tangentially involved with the case, who knew about it. And obviously I interviewed many gay men who were adults and living in Manhattan during those years. It simply did not catch anyone's attention and for very good reason.
1: And so along the lines of the police completely letting down the chelsea and west village communities there's this murderer who kills gay men and it's hard to get that to the top of the NYPD's priorities list at that time
2: well not just not just the NYPD's priorities mm-hmm. list but even the communities sure you know it's it's sort of like spilling a glass of water on yourself in the middle of a rainstorm Mm -hmm. you're not going to really feel it quite frankly um you know looking back on it now i'm shocked that it got as much attention as it did and i think it only happened because it was new york and because margaret mulcahy the wife of the second victim was so vocal about wanting these murders to be solved
1: because once again you're dealing with if if you if justice comes from family members being active and angry and vocal then that makes it extra difficult if So many of the men who died were at least partially closeted.
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, for me, Margaret was as close to a hero as the book has, because she kept at it and, and not everybody did. Not everybody had advocates.
1: You do eventually find a perpetrator the stories line up he was convicted of some stuff
2: two of the murders the ones in new two jersey of the
1: murders. but you don't spend a lot of time on him
2: part of it is as i say i'm just not interested yeah. but also he never confessed to this day Uh, Even in letters he sends from prison. He denies any culpability. Um, And also just in general, motive doesn't tend to really factor into serial murder cases. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time you're killing upwards of a half dozen people, at least you're just doing it because you like it. So, to the extent that i was interested in him eventually it was only because i felt that you know he was probably under some of the same societal pressures as his victims mm-hmm. but he obviously handled it differently and made different choices
1: thank you yuan this has been So enlightening and so terrifying and sad, too. Um, Before we go, everyone should read Last Call, um, especially if you're like me and have lived in New York a long time and you think you know everything or partly everything or something, and you basically just know nothing. That's my blur. (laughs) Um, Elon, tell me what you've been reading before we um, say goodbye.
2: Right now, I am reading um, Sarah Shulman's forthcoming history of ACT UP, New York.
1: Have you found overlap?
2: To some degree. um, ACT UP is mentioned only once in my book. um, Mainly in in passing in the uh, Anti-Violence Project chapter. But... No, I mean, hers is such a thorough, uh, insanely so, uh, yes, history that, yeah. You know. Uh, uh, the other book is The Believer by Abe Reisman, uh, his biography of Stan Lee. And um, I'm loving both of them. I no longer have the patience to read anything I don't like.
1: That's what a wonderful point (laughs) to get to. I'm still learning.
2: Well, luckily, um, you know, my job to the extent that I have one doesn't require that I do that.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Elon Green, thank you so much. This was such a joy.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.